So today I'm going to make some correlations between old and new wine, the old and new covenant, and old and new creation. This passage follows several accounts of miracles and healing that Jesus performed. The account is also found in Matthew and Mark, although the last verse, 39, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better, is only found in Luke's account. Now the Pharisees were getting a little perturbed with this Jesus fellow. They were always looking to catch him out or discredit him somehow in some way. Why was this? There was already conflict between the Pharisees and Sadducees regarding belief, liturgy and rituals. This Jesus was another challenger to how things should be done. The Pharisees held the Old Testament in high regard. They were well-intentioned and apparently devout. They practiced in an age-old way with set rules and regulations. This upstart, who appealed to the masses, threatened their status and undermined their long-standing beliefs. By what authority was he acting on? Sure, he had knowledge and understanding of what we call the Old Testament, but where did his alternative views spring from? It's fair to imagine Jesus was charismatic, even enigmatic, a once-met, never-forgotten character. Jesus was in the habit of challenging the current viewpoint of the day. Jesus challenged the Pharisees' thinking in a similar way to how he challenges ours. To be challenged by the words of Jesus is a truly blessed position to be in. It promotes positive engagement with our Lord God, something the Pharisees, even though being great scholars, didn't fully comprehend. This parable accurately depicted how they were feeling towards Jesus with his new ideas, old and new mixed together. Surely the two were incompatible. Fabric was a valued item. So to take material from a new garment and patch an old garment just didn't make sense. Old material is worn, so new, stronger material would soon pull away. Further to that, they couldn't help but see the sense of not putting new wine into old wineskins since they would burst. Why, is, why was he attempting to add his new ideas to the old ideas at all? But now the rub is revealed when he went on to say new wine should go into wine, new wineskins. He was telling them something they already knew. And in doing so, he revealed he understood their doubts of new ways fitting in with old ways. This could arguably have rocked their boat. How marvellous was Jesus when he showed his understanding of human nature, when he said, no one after drinking old wine wants the new because they say the old is better. It needs time to mature. The old, and the old tried and tested ways are the best ways. Then, as now, he shows understanding and deep knowledge of us and our thinking. 
Jesus wasn't saying that John the Baptist or the Pharisees were wrong in their ways and methods, but their ways weren't for everyone. They tended to leave some people outside the boundaries, people who were abandoned, overlooked, bypassed, or rejected. Old and new wine has its goodness, is the lesson Jesus was delivering. Can anyone say no wine is fit to be drunk until it is old? At that point, he was working his way towards introducing the meaning of the new covenant, the new covenant which we here today live under. Jesus is the new covenant, the living testament of proclaiming that through his blood we come directly to God. The kingdom of God has arrived. In Luke 22:20 20, says, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And in Hebrews 8:13, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Experiencing change is a somewhat uncomfortable situation if, for most, if not all of us. We like the familiar. We feel safe. To accept change and embrace it takes a certain mindset. Jesus knows this, then and now. So he gently guides us towards the revelation that Jesus himself made the former covenant obsolete and outdated. Jesus and his followers was also criticised for eating and drinking while there was fasting and prayer going on elsewhere. Now, either Jesus was a total egomaniac or he had complete and confident authority from his heart heavenly father to be the to be the bridegroom celebrating with his friends. Jesus knew he wouldn't always be with them in human form. He knew they'd mourn and grieve and fast when that time came. But, but since he was with them now, there was no need to fast. This wasn't an act of defiance, but yet another clue to his true identity. Let's take a look at some of those diverse disciples who were compelled some way, somehow, to be at Jesus' side whenever they could. Peter, full-on believer one minute, denying Jesus to save his own skin the next, walking on water towards Jesus, then sinking in doubt because he took his eyes off him. Then he witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus and went on to become one of the boldest evangelists and significant leaders of the early church, passionate for him till the end. Andrew, Peter's brother, who originally followed John the Baptist and in fact brought Peter to Jesus, he then rather went into the shadow of his brother. He was but a simple fisherman who appeared to seek the truth and found it in Jesus, which resulted in him becoming a fisher of men. James, son of Zebedee and brother of John the Apostle, together known as the sons of thunder, 
So I imagine they were animated, loud and perhaps boisterous. I'd have liked them. Jesus was the first disciple to be martyred for his safe faith in AD 44. John, the apostle, James's brother, he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had great zeal and enthusiasm to share the words of Jesus and outlived all the other disciples. He raced and beat Peter to the empty tomb, yet he let Peter go in first. Philip, he was the one of the first to follow Jesus and then went on to encourage others to do the same, many others to do the same. Matthew, or Levi, hated by many because he was a tax collector for the Romans and used his own judgment on the amount of tax he charged. Jesus said those two words, follow me, and that's exactly what he did. He threw a great farewell to tax collecting feast in Capernaum and became instead a collector of souls for Christ. Thomas, known for his doubt about the risen Lord and was honoured and favoured enough by Jesus to show him his wounds and so convince him, so much so that he travelled far and wide proclaiming the gospel. Judas Iscariot, well-known betrayer of Jesus, carried out by a kiss and the reward of 30 pieces of silver. He hanged himself in remorse to redeem himself, which at that time was an accepted use of suicide. Should he be hated or, or pitied? It seems that in some way these men were completely turned around by Jesus New people, if you like. The more time they spent with him, the more they were compelled to listen to him and learn. Sure, they didn't understand the vastness of Jesus, but they followed all the same. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. New things have come. I came to Jesus through this church 30 years ago. So 30 years ago, I became a new creation. It's a stunning thought that all these years on, and I still don't fully comprehend the salvation I've received through our beloved Lord Jesus. I joined the family of God just like you all did. I guess that relationships in any fellowship from any church could be likened to relationships within a functioning family, inasmuch as there's a deep underlying love for each other, despite our annoying quirks, with vast differences in our makeup. Speaking of makeup, I've worn this stuff for over 40 years. And I can confidently say it's done nothing in real terms to make me a better person, unlike my garment of salvation. <coughs> I, I totally agree with Isaiah 61.10. I delight greatly in the Lord. 
My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest. As born-again Christians, when we left our old identity behind us, was it left to us to reinvent ourselves? Do we patch up the old and torn with a new piece? Do we try and live our, fill our old lives with new fillings in the hope that we're improving ourselves, getting wiser, getting purer, getting it right this time? Or do we give all that is us to Jesus and let him make the changes, the alterations, the making good, the making new, a new creation, a new creature every day? Through Jesus, we are renewed every day. Some changes are so minute, others more noticeable. Some are ongoing. In fact, I might hazard to suggest most are ongoing. So why would any Christian want to let go of the author of us? I want Jesus with me every day, breaking me, changing me, moulding me, filling me with his Holy Spirit to work with, through and in me fresh each morning. Hold on to this. Each day I am a new creation. I didn't used to be new and I'm now not new. Okay, old. I'm not formally a new creation. I'm new every day. And unlike my makeup, which needs to be reapplied in the same way every day, our new creation status is updated, overwritten constantly by the grace of God. The base requirement is that we keep our eyes fixed on him. We're never all going to be on the same page at the same time, but the very word fellowship tells us to be on the same book with a united plan. God is the head of our church, our fellowship. Do we just rock up with no expectations? The answer is, of course, no. We expect our Lord to be ever-present, ever-loving, ever-the-same, yet always new. You may be familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It follows a group of diverse people with one aim. They became a fellowship to achieve that aim. It didn't really need to be verbalised or even agreed. However, in that group, as in any group of like-minded folk, any family, any team, it should be taken as read that we mutually agree to trust one another and mutually agree to help one another, to achieve one goal, and reach the desired destination. This quote from Edward Monckton says, he knows not where he's going, for the ocean will decide. It's not the destination, it's the glory of the ride. Cute, huh? Does that describe the journey of a Chris Christian? Well, of course not. If we know and keep hold of the ultimate truth that Jesus is the new covenant and that he loves us, 
we should embrace the chance to know him deeper and fuller, following him in newness every day for the journey, the adventure that leads to the mar marvellous destination that is the kingdom of God. Amen. So now I'm going to hand over to Dave for our time of reflection and prayers. I think uh, what we'll do now is uh, we're going to have three sections of, uh, of prayer. Um, uh, the, the first part is Thanksgiving. The second part will be including our confessions. And the third part will include our intercessions. So in the third part, uh, in the open prayer time, Please include your prayers for the world issues and issues of the country and ourselves. Um, each section will start with a song, um, and Lorraine will open the prayers um, before handing over to, to, to the rest of you guys. And we'll remain seated as we begin by singing Faithful God. <laughs> 